Thank you. The music was wonderful this morning. Just wonderful. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. We're thankful, Father, for the rain. The rain waters the grass. The rain is necessary. And it may inconvenience us at times. But, Father, our eyes are on you and not on the weather. We thank you, Lord, that the sun is shining in here because your spirit and your son are in here because you promised where two or more of us are gathered in his name. There is he in our midst. We brought him in here when we came because he lives in us. But he's now not just here in us, he's here among us. And Father, now we thank you for the worship, the time of worshiping you and praising you, of giving thanks to you. And now we turn our attention to the word. Father, the provision that you've given for the church is perfect. And what you've given to us is your word. Jesus said your words are spirit and they are life. It's unlike any other book ever given or written. This is a living word. This is God speaking to us today. And we thank you that the second thing you've given to the church, which is just as essential, is your spirit. Your word says that he searches the depths of your heart to bring out of that and to reveal to us the things that are freely given to us by you. And we pray this morning, Father, for the Holy Spirit. We trust him to take that which you want to say to us, which you've formed in my heart, and to bring it out with his words, with his emphasis, and with his heart especially. Father, we ask you for ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to grasp what the Spirit is saying to each one of us and to us collectively together. And we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen, and amen. Well, we're in a series here. We're on a journey together. Let's call it that. I felt the Lord speaking that to me. We're not in a series. We're on a journey together. And what Jesus has called us to do, if you simplify it down to everything, it's really simply this. Jesus has called us to follow him. When he, when he, when he called the disciples, he made very clear what he was calling them to do was to simply follow him. And we talked at the very beginning of how simple that sounds and how simple it is, but how complicated it can be to live it out because we are children of God. And like children, we get easily distracted. On the long trips, we used to go with our family. We know, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? When can we stop and eat? I've got to go to the bathroom. All this stuff. And, because, and, 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 and we as children of God get so easily distracted. And it's so important, not just to bring us all together, but I believe with all my heart there's a place that God is calling us. And I know it's not just us because I'm hearing this from others calling his church to go somewhere, but if he didn't teach us this principle, we'd run off and try to get there. But if we simply follow him, he will get us there. He will get us there. In fact, if you don't follow him, you won't make it. You'll get distracted and pulled off course. And then we saw that when Jesus, they just responded to the call, come follow me. But then we saw that Jesus began to explain to them what was involved. And he said to them, first of all, you have to deny yourself. And we talked about what that means. It doesn't mean you've got to die. It doesn't mean that you've got to cease existing, lose your personality. It means you deny yourself the right to relate to people, yourself, to God, and to the world as if you were separate from Him. That our relationship with everything is only in Him and through him, and Jesus uses the example of, he said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And we saw that branches have no relationship with each other 
outside of the vine. That is the connection that they have together. And that's the connection that we have with one another. And then we began to talk about what we're focusing on now. Jesus said in order to do that, you also have to take up your cross. And we're focusing on the fact that, that the cross we're to take up is our cross. That means there's a cross that each one of us is assigned to. And, and it's similar to what Jesus took. It may be that there are people in the world today than there have been that have had to actually be executed and martyred to follow Him. But majority of us are not going to be martyred physically for that. But there are many other ways that we have to take up our cross and, and to go through. And, and the idea we have to keep coming back to is these are not things in and of themselves we are to do. These are the consequence of following Him. Because to follow Him, we have to be willing to go where He went and do what He did. And where He went cost Him His life. And the first thing we looked at and what it means to bear our cross is to suffer persecution. And we'll talk more about that as we get into next year, I'm sure. Jesus was persecuted because He came to speak for God the Father and speak truth. And people, we're going to look a little bit at this morning, people by and large they don't want to know the truth. He used the, the image of light. People want to stay in the darkness because the light reveals the truth. I'm sure none of you ever were in one of these places, but before you were saved, some of us may have hung out in places, nightclubs and places like that, at, which are at night, and they're always dark. They don't have floodlights going on. People want to hide in there from other people and from themselves, and that's what darkness does. And Jesus came to dispel the darkness, and so people that did not want to walk in truth hated Him. Well, if they hated him, he said, they're going to hate you if you follow me and you identify with me. And then we began to talk about taking up our cross has to do with our relationship with each other. And that it's more than just getting along. I mean, so many Christians have trouble getting along with other Christians. That's kindergarten stuff in the body of Christ. We're called to more than get along. We saw that we are called to forgive. And forgiveness involves taking what you've done wrong to me and instead of getting back at you for what you've done wrong, I let it go. I take the hurt on me so you can be free of the guilt. And we saw that's what Jesus did. He took the pain and the penalty for what we did wrong against God the Father and He bore it on Himself so that we might be free. That's really the heart of of forgiveness, and we spent quite a bit of time on that. And then we began to look at it means, a second thing that it means, is it means that we have to govern our lives by how our lives impact and affect other people. Because the tendency of human nature is, well, I've got rights, I'm going to exercise my rights, and if, it's a, if it causes a problem for you, that's your problem, that's not mine. But that's not walking in love, the love that God has with us. God governed His, Jesus governed His life by how it would impact us. And we spent time in, in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, which says, Have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who gave up all his privileges and rights, so that he might come here and take on us, on himself, and die in our place. So we saw that to govern my life means I may have certain freedoms that I think I can exercise, but how is it going to impact you? 
begin to govern my life and how I talk and how I act because we affect each other. God made it that way. And we'll look at that further down the road. That's why Proverbs talks so much about the attitudes we have because they're contagious. The people that you hang around with, you will pick up their attitudes. And Proverbs was written much of it to children's son. Of Sol- sons of Solomon talking about be careful who you hang out with my sons because you will adopt their attitude because attitudes are contagious so if you want to know where you're headed look at the people you hang out with because most likely that's where you're headed and then we began to look at a third thing uh, 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 last week well we're in that, excuse me it's, oh no, the third thing was taking up my cross involves bearing one another's burdens and we looked in Galatians chapter 6 which says those of you who are strong in faith should bear the struggles of those who are weak. And we saw that we have a responsibility to one another because we're, because we're all part of the same body. We have a responsibility not just care for each other from a distance to be actively involved in that caring for one another because just as your body does that you stub your toe in the middle of the night and all of your body wakes up and goes on alert to take care of that toe that just got injured why? because it's your toe that got injured so the Bible says that if one of us is blessed we've all been blessed if one of us is hurting we're all hurting because we're one body and yet the reality is that in a church like this that most churches today on Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever they met most of churches, it's a bunch of individuals that come in, smile at each other, love on each other, and then a bunch of individuals go back out the door. And Jesus said, the world's going to know what I'm like by the way you relate to one another and care for one another. God doesn't just get along with us. God gave everything for us. And we ended by looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan story is, of course, there's the two religious leaders come to Jesus, or, G, or the, the lawyer. I, this gentleman comes to Jesus <laughs> and gets into this debate with him, and then he says, you know, what, are the, what, what, are, what do I have to do to, to go to heaven? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, what are the greatest? The best, greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the, and the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. And the lawyer, just thinking the way lawyers would do, looking for the loophole, says, well, who's my neighbor? And it says, seeking to justify himself. Basically, he was trying to find what is the border of my responsibility as a member of the family of God. What are the limits of my responsibility? And Jesus tells this cute story. We all know is the story of the Good Samaritan, the two religious leaders who ought to know better go down the street. There's a guy that's been injured. He's laying on the other side, curb on the other side of the road. He's bleeding. He's knocked out. And they take a look at him and they cross the road to get avoid him because in their mind that's not their responsibility. But a Samaritan comes along. And a Samaritan was hated by the Jews. A Samaritan comes along and he sees this man's need and he's moved with compassion and he goes and he takes whatever he has and binds his wounds up. He uses his first aid kit to minister to him. Then he carries him to the latest holiday inn and he rents a room for him and he takes care of him and then he tells the innkeeper, here's my American Express card. Until I come back, whatever he needs, you charge it to my account. And then Jesus said to the lawyer, which one of those three was a neighbor to him. And the lawyer has to answer the only obvious answer, he who showed mercy. And so we ended at that. So we have a responsibility to go further. And what happens is we're looking for what's this going to cost me? 
and I got to tell you, I'm preaching to me this morning because I'm not comfortable with this, but it's the Word. So I'm going to talk to you out of me right now this morning. Just, I'll, I'm, it's just, maybe it's the lawyer in me. I want to know what's it going to cost. Can I afford the time to do this? Can I, what about my schedule? Can I take this interruption? You know, a lot of what Jesus did, the stories we have were interruptions in His schedule. Lafayette Scales, a number of years ago, did an amazing series on Are You Willing to Be Interrupted? And some of what we're going to talk about, he actually got into. But let's go to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to use one more example here, and then we're going to go on to the fourth way that we're to take up our cross in our relationships. Matthew 25. It was here this morning. Matthew 25 is near the end of Jesus' life, and he's beginning to address things to talk to people about being ready. And he addresses some of these things to the religious leaders. And I've got to, I've got to be... Well, I always want to be honest with you. When people say, I'm going to be honest with you, that makes me wonder, does that mean when you don't say that? It just creates this little doubt. If you've got to tell me you're going to be honest with me... Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels are with Him, so He's talking about when He comes back, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. And the King will say to those who are on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here was the standard. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger and you took Me in. I was naked and you clothed Me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and said to them, Assuredly I say to you, as much as you did it unto unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Now he goes on and uses the negative side of that. He talks to the goats and said, As much as you didn't do it unto the least of these, you did not do it unto me. Now I've studied commentaries and their different opinions by theologians much smarter than I am about whether this applies to the nations. God's going to separate the nations based on how they treated Israel or not. And, and then there are other commentaries that say, Well, that's not really what he's talking about. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story, at least for us this morning, is Jesus is identifying Himself with the people that He loves and says, what you do for others in need, you're doing for me. So we can come to church and say, Lord, I love you, but the proof of our love for Him is in the way we express and act out our love for one another. Our love, which is why Jesus said, they're going to know what I'm like by the way you love one another. This is why Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. All right. 
So we've talked about what it means to take up our cross in our relationships with one another in the church, forgiving one another, uh, governing our lives by how we're going to impact those that may not have been around as much, may not have, uh, have the liberty or freedom that we know we're entitled to have. And now taking care of one another, helping to bear one another's burdens and in, 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 in meeting the needs of one another. But there's a fourth level of relationship that the Bible talks about. And this is not our relationship with one another. We're now going to go into, 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 into college. We started at nursery school. The second one was about elementary school. We've been in middle school, and now we've just come out of high school. All right? Bearing one another's burdens. Now we're going to step into college. Jesus talks to us about how we are to relate to the world out there. And what do I mean by the world? I mean people out there that don't have the same regard for the word that we have, that have talk Again, talk in ways that, that live by standards that, 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 are, that, that disregard the word world. And you know, 20 years ago, that may be hard to discern what the day today is not hard to discern those who are of the world and those who aren't. The problem is it's creeping into the church, and in that way, can it, be, it can be hard to discern. So, by the world, I'm referring to unbelievers, sinners, those whose lifestyles or beliefs are contrary to the world and contrary to what we would hold dear. Now here's a foundation for understanding that. Because I, by the way, this is all in my notes. You can get those, you can download those. Because I'm in Christ, now listen carefully, this is so important. Because I am in Christ, not only is my relationship with you through Him, but our relationship with the world is only through Him. The world, we can only relate to unbelievers and the world only through Him. Why? Because we're in Christ. So if I'm going to have my own view or evaluation of people in the world apart from Christ, I have just pulled myself out of Him and I've asserted my own independence. And we'll see that later on, that I can judge people the way I want to judge them, not see them the way He sees them. And we're all products of the family we grew up in, whatever that may have been like. And I am regularly confronted with attitudes that I found out or were sown into me as a child about people that don't look the way I do. And I'm not talking about color and race. Just attitudes about people. It can be old people. It can be young people. It can be children. It can be racial. And it, racial is like this. And these are, these are thoughts that were planted in us and although we're new creatures in Christ, that's not our nature now. We have to renew our mind to what the Bible says about how we're to look at one another. Amen. And I'm not talking about the church now. I'm talking about the world. Yes. Right. I only have a right, if I'm in Christ, I only have a right to look at people in the world and evaluate them based on what Jesus sees in them yes. and how He sees them. Amen. Or else I've pulled myself out of Christ and I'm trying to act as a judge independent of him, and I didn't shed my blood for them, and he did. So we're going to look at some aspects of this, and, and as I began to look at this and study this out earlier this year, it confronted some things in me, and I'll share some of that when we get to it, maybe. All right. We have to remember this. 
outside of Christ, I am just as lost and just as unrighteous as the most ranked sinner in the world today. So I have no right to look at them by my own standards or my own motives. And I was thinking about this. I, I realized and there may be more, but I could see two distinct points of view that are in the church. And by that I don't mean just this church, but this is the only one I can speak for and can be in, in me too. Two attitudes that we can have. Response to the world. And the first response is, is we can withdraw from the world. This was the basis of monasticism. And the idea was this, the world's dirty, it's full of sin, it's actually full of sinners, amazing that. And if I get around them, they may contaminate me, so I better withdraw from the world and I better stay among these nice clean Christians who have trouble loving one another and forgiving one another <laughs> and have things held up in their, no, excuse me, just lovely, wonderful Christians, it's so wonderful to be around. And if I'm in the world, if I'm out in, engaging in the world, I, I, you know, it, it might ruin my testimony. If I'm out there engaging in the world and, and interacting with the world, then, 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 then you know, it, it, and actually the reality is it threatens us. We're not secure enough in who we are in Christians that we think by being out among sinners that it might pull us away. I remember when I was in Bible school, for the first, I don't know how many months, I didn't work. We had sold our house and had inherited a little bit of money, so I, was, I didn't have to work, but as it turned out, it would have been smarter because I blew through all that money. And so I came to the end and run out, and I, and I, I'm, I'm, I really need to get a job, and, and I'm thinking about, okay, uh, I could try to go to get a job. Those, in fact, I'd been given the name of a lawyer uh, in, ta- in, in Tulsa that I, maybe I could go get a job from. But I had this thought in my mind, well, if I... If I go back into the law office, I may get pulled out of this call to the ministry. So I went to see a, a, one of the head of counseling who had been a, a, a surgeon and had left his medical practice to go to Bible school and was now in, in ministry as a counselor at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. And I went to talk to him. And it's amazing sometimes when you go to counsel, it just cuts right through. And he said, John, let me tell you this. If going to work in a law firm for a while, will pull you out of the call in the ministry, you're not called. I said, oh, that's pretty, pretty obvious. And so, why was my point? I, let's vote on it. Let's see. <laughs> what do you want my point to be? <laughs> I didn't what? I needed a job. I needed a job. Yeah, thank you. What? I'll go back to my notes. I can't hear you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was my point, but it's a good one. <laughs> oh, I was afraid that by being around other lawyers again, I'd be drawn back out of what God has called me into. And we get, we get really, we're insecure. 
we think by being out inter- interacting with the world that somehow that's going to pull us out of what we believe. Now, that doesn't mean you're to go hang out at the bar tonight and use that as an excuse. Paul said, I've, I've, I've learned to become all things to all men that I might, buy, I might win some to Christ. And I, I've had people say, well, pastor, I'm going to go out and I'm going to win them. I'm going to go hang out at the bar. The problem is they'll probably influence you more than you'll influence them. So I'm talking about using wisdom. I'm talking about you know, the, the people that are in your world right now. Because we'll go to work when we work among, as most of us do, I don't, among sinners. At least I don't think I do. No. <laughs> and, and we, you know, we, we just, we don't want to, we kind of want to, even on the job, we want to stay away from them. So we want to maybe read our Bible at lunch and, and we want to just, you know, I don't want to, but we're to interact with them. That's why we're here. But we've had to face what the reservation is. Well, somehow it's going to get off on me. Somehow it's going to affect me. Or more than that, it just makes me uncomfortable. And if we've got time, I'm going to show you a video at the end of this message that may make you uncomfortable. Oh boy, Lord. <laughs> I've got to be careful I don't get off on this. There is nothing in the Bible that tells us that as Christians we have a right to be comfortable. In fact, as I read it, it's just the opposite. And if comfort is your goal, or even a reservation you have, that I'm going to, lose, I'm going to be uncomfortable, then you need to get saved. Um, you need to wake up and realize you, we're being deceived. The church has been lulled. Lulled into this misunderstanding. Mis- we've adopted the, the goals of the world that we have a right to be happy and we have a right to be comfortable. We cannot do what we're called to do here if we're going to be comfortable and we're going to be happy. That doesn't mean you'll be unhappy. But if that's your goal, God can't use you very much. Because all you're going to do is hang out with people like you that make you happy. And they don't need you. It's those that are unhappy. Those that are in uncomfortable places that need us. Woo! That's good preaching. So that's the first error. And so, you know, people thinking they're being more devout will withdraw from the world and hang out in monasteries. And maybe God calls some people to do that. But Martin Luther had to come... Oh, John, be careful you don't get off. Martin Luther had got to deal with him about that. He had to... He says, you're shutting up this revelation I've given you about grace and you're keeping it to yourself in the monastery. You've got to take it out where it, will, it may cost you your life. And almost did. So that's the first one. The second one gets even closer to home. The second error of why we have trouble relating to the world is we live in judgment of the world. We think we're better than they are because we've seen the truth and they don't see it. So there's two things we're going to look at. First is pride. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Oh boy, we've got to move on. Very well-known verse. 
Well, let's go down to... Um, Uh, we're going to start in verse 9. But I'll tell you what goes on before. I'm just trying to save some time here. He's just talked about a prophecy in the Old Testament about that the, the Messiah, when He comes, is going to be a rock. And that rock, will be, to some, will be the cornerstone of their life. They'll build your life on that rock. That's obviously referring to Christ. To others, He will be a stumbling block. And He's basically saying He's going to cause a division. Those that will accept Him and submit their lives to Him, He will become the foundation on which their lives are built. Those that will not accept Him and reject Him, He becomes the stumbling block. And then He talks about us. Verse, uh, we're going to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. Yes. Now, some translations say you are a peculiar people. He doesn't mean weird, it means special. Now, so we can get the attitude, whoa, whoa, yeah, I'm a chosen generation. I'm a royal priesthood, holy nation. We're His own, His own special people. And we are. But the verse goes on. Why? So that we proclaim the praises of Him who called us. We didn't call Him. We didn't knock on His door and say, Woo! I am special. I am royal. I am holy. You need to let me in. No, no. He called us out of the same darkness they're in. So the only reason we're here today is because He called us out of that darkness. Into His marvelous light. Verse 10. For we were once not a people of God, basically, but now you are the people of God. We had not obtained mercy, but we have now obtained mercy. The only difference between us in here and the world out there is we have received the mercy that has also been given to them. And it wasn't because we're so smart. Second reason. First is pride. The second, and this is more difficult, judgment. We feel somehow we have an obligation to judge their sin. Now the Bible tells us to be fruit inspectors. You know them by their fruit. He didn't say you're to judge them by their fruit. You're to know where they're coming from by the fruit that they produce. Talking mainly about Christians and teachers. We think that if we love them, we're obligated somehow to point out their sin. After all, isn't the church to stand for righteousness and not approve sin? Yes. But let's look what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 7. Everybody okay? Yes. All right, some of you are. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 1. Judge not. That's pretty clear. Judge not, and, and here's why, that you not be judged. So I don't know how we can read that. 
I don't know how we can read that. You have to... Rob Grindley did an amazing job last week. But one of the things he talked about is we have a filter in here. And we only let in the word we hear that we're, com- that we're willing to try, that we're willing to do. That we think we can process. How can we not get this simple thing? Judge not so that you're not judged. He was reading one last week. And just, I'm, I understand saying, if we don't forgive each other, He won't forgive us. Duh! How does that not get through? I don't know about you, but I need to be forgiven. I can't afford, if God's word's true, and it is, I can't afford to not forgive you because His word says, the same word that says, if I put my faith in Christ, I'll be saved. That same word says, if I don't forgive you, I won't be forgiven. The same word says, if I judge you, I'll be judged. Getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. Verse 2. Oh, here you go. For the, what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. We choose the standard that God's going to use to judge us. We choose it. So when you stand before God, God, that's awful harsh. No, I just use your standard. So the next time you want to give that co-worker a piece of your mind you can't afford to spare, (laughs) and with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Keep going. Why do you... Here we go. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? That's the little piece. But don't consider the plank that's in yours. I was meditating on this years ago and it suddenly dawned on me there's a connection between the speck, which is a splinter, and the plank. It's this. They're both a piece of wood. So what allows me to see that little sliver of wood in your eye is this big piece of wood that I'm looking through to see you. The reason I can recognize wood in your eye is my eye's full of it. I'm going to say that over here because we need to hear that again. The reason I can see what's wrong with you is because I'm looking at what's wrong with me. That's why I can identify it in you. We're going to go on and see. That's why I want to have it judged in you because it takes the attention off of moi. Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, there's a plank in your own. Kind of like going to the eye doctor. A number of years ago, I had this irritation in my eye, so I went to the eye doctor and he said, you got a cat hair in there. I said, oh really? I said, and tell me how it's getting out. He said, well, I'm going to lift your eyelid and pull it out. I said, oh, you really think you are? He said, no, I'll numb you. And he did. But imagine if he went to do that. And, he gave, and he's looking out and all his hair is hanging out of his eyes. He's trying to look through it to find that little cat here in my eye. That's what we do. We think we're qualified to judge them because of what we see so clearly. But the reason we see it so clearly... Is because it's in us. 
Oh, praise God. This is so wonderful to hear, Pastor. Just keep it going. Verse 6. I I didn't write this. Verse 6. Do we have verse 6? Oh, is this verse 5? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Because he changes subjects in verse 6. That's right. That's right. They're right. Okay. Now, I'm going to read you some quotes out of a book that's been affecting my life. The Bible, obviously, has been a big book. This is a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer back in the 40s called The Cost of Discipleship. It is not light reading, but it's changing my life. And there's a section in there where he talks about how the church is to relate to the world. And I'm gonna, I was reading through this again yesterday. He says it so much better than I could ever say it. Now, this is a little bit of a long quote. It's in the notes. If you want to see this, it's also in the book. You know, this is quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, by the way, lived what he preached because he was martyred. He was martyred. He was executed in one of the, one of the Nazi prison camps just days before they were liberated. And if I remember the story correctly, he lived what he preached in front of those guards to the point that they were weeping when they had to hang him. And that's having an impact on the world around you. Bonhoeffer wrote this, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. But in love of Christ, in the love of Christ, we know all about everything conceivable, sin and guilt, for we know how Jesus suffered and how all men have been forgiven at the foot of the cross. We forget that. All have been forgiven at the foot of the cross. Christian love sees his fellow man under the cross and therefore sees him with clarity. If when we judge others, our real motive was to destroy evil, we should look for the evil where it's certain to be found, and that's in our own hearts. If we're really concerned about sin and we see it in other people, we should look first of it all in our own hearts. That's what he's saying there. But if we're to look out for evil in order to escape the punishment for our sins, excuse me, but if we're to look out for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves. For we are seeking to escape punishment for our own sins by passing judgment on others. And we're assuming by implication that the Word of God... Listen to this one. And we're assuming by implication that the Word of God applies to us in one way and to them in another way. This is highly dangerous and misleading. For we are trying to claim for ourselves a special privilege which we deny to others. But Christ's disciples have no rights of their own or standards of right and wrong which they could enforce on other people. Listen to that. We have no rights, no standard of right and wrong that's ours with which to judge other people. It's not our standard. We have received nothing but Christ's fellowship, His relationship. 
Therefore, the disciple is not to sit in judgment over his fellow man, because when he does, he has usurped God's jurisdiction. James talks about that. He says, when you judge others, you put yourself in the place of the lawgiver, God. Getting very quiet in here. So what do we need to look at? That's what we not do. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Everybody still okay? Yeah, yeah of course, sure. That's good. I've learned when people are quiet, they're, it's, they're listening. Or they're asleep, one or the other. So I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Paul's just finished talking about chapter 1 talks about how, how uh, it talks about the world. And the world has, has, the unbelievers that have heard and rejected the gospel have just chosen because they don't want to know there's a God. That's basically what it comes down to. The world's trying to get rid of God because if there's a God, somewhere we're going to have to stand before Him and give an account. And I don't want to feel guilty and I don't want to stand before anybody and give an account. So the answer is to get rid of God somehow. That's what's going on in the world today. I get rid of God, then I can do what I want to do. Early in the 20th century, a philosopher named Frederick Nietzsche declared God is dead. I have news for Frederick. Nietzsche's dead, and God's very much alive. So that's just not going to happen. And then in chapter 2, he talks about this same thing. If you start judging them, be careful because you're setting a standard for yourself. Chapter 3 says, see, we're, all, we're, we're, we're saved by grace. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's to qualify for us grace, because grace comes by seeing, oh, well, I've got to be careful because I'll, I'll go off on this. I've got to move on. And then chapter 4 talks about what faith is, because it's by faith that we receive Christ, and it's by faith that we receive His righteousness. And it's a great explanation of faith. So Romans 5 begins what the consequence of this is are. So it starts out by saying, God's not angry at you. He poured His anger out on Jesus. But we're going to go down to verse, to verse 6. He's going to explain this. Verse 5 says that God's love for us has been poured out on us by the Holy Spirit was given to us. Verse 6 says, While we were still without strength, oh, that is so powerful, to save ourselves, we were hopeless, we were weak. While we were still without strength, in due time, look at this, Christ died for the church. What? He died for those that were good. No, he died for the ungodly. That's you and me. That's who we were before we received him. He died for the ungodly. The world out there we're talking about today, they're ungodly, and he died for them. That person at work that's so nasty at you that you just want to give that same piece of your mind to, Jesus died for them. When I see somebody and I find one of these old attitudes coming up in me, I remind them, Jesus died for that person just as He died for me. That hopeless reprobate that you may... seeing on Thursday at a dinner. That's good timing for this. I didn't think of that until now. 
that uncle that you said, oh, he's a cigar smoking, blah, 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 oh, I can't, I don't want to sit near him. Oh, he reeks of smoke. He's just, his mouth is foul. I don't want to be anywhere near him. I want to go hold out with my family that's loved. And blah, 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 you know, blah, 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 blah. Jesus died for him. See, J- Jesus didn't have people, he, he died for one level because they were so good. And at another level, he had to pour out more blood because they were so bad. No, we were equally. We were equally. We were equally sinners and ungodly. Pastor, I was a pretty good person. So was I. I was a good sinner. And I don't mean that I sinned well. I was pride. Rebellion are the root of all sin. And we were all full of it. <laughs> I've wanted to say that in church. You're full of it. <laughs> oh boy. Let's go down. Let's go down to verse 8. But God demonstrates, notice that's present tense, His own special love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now go down to verse 10. Skip down to verse 10. For one, we were enemies. Not only were we sinners, the Bible says you were His enemy. I didn't hate God. You were His enemy because we were in rebellion. Rebellion means I'm going to do what I want. I may let God in my life, but I want to do what I want. Many of us are still dealing with that to some degree. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to Christ through the death of His Son. Much more have we reconciled, we'd be saved by His life. Let's go to John 3, 16. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the church that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever... But that's the attitude we have. I'm God's child. I'm God's son. You're my brothers and sisters. I'm God's son. So I'm special. And I am. You're special. Do you know that I'm number one with God? How can you say that? Because I'm in Christ. And He's number one. So you're number one with Him also. But He loved the world, the rank sinners, that He gave His only... Do you know God planned... Jesus died before anybody was saved? I mean, think about that. He gave His life up before anybody received Him. And he would have given his life up if everybody was going to say no. Because he offered it as a free gift. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we often forget to go to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Then why do we think we have a right to do that? God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. 
Does that mean that he, he tolerates sin? No. But God separates the sinner from the sin. God separates the sinner from the sin. He sees the sinner as somebody bound up in the sin and He wants to set them free from the sin they're bound to and He judges the sin and forgives the sinner if they'll come to Him. But we identify them with the sin. So we're angry at the sin and we take our anger for the sin out on the sinner. to move on. Now how are we to relate to the world? What is this? How is this taking up our cross? Well, we're to follow Jesus. Jesus, out of love for us as sinners, bore our sin and punishment to set us free. So we're to see them, the unbelievers, and love them as Christ loves them because we're in Him. Jesus made this very simple. He reduced it to one simple principle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I used to have this view when I would read these scriptures that he's talking about our brothers. He was talking about brothers in Christ. And what began to open my eyes is some of the things I've been reading to you to realize God's vision is bigger than that. So I want to sum up, there's many other things I could have read out of Bonhoeffer's book, but I want to sum it up with this, and we're going to look at a video. Bonhoeffer writes this, To sum up, it's clear from the foregoing that the disciple has no special privilege or power of his own in his relationship with others. The mainspring of his life and work is the strength which comes from following, from fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus offers His disciples a simple rule of thumb which will enable even the least sophisticated of them to tell whether His intercourse or relationship with others is on the right lines or not. All He need to do is substitute I for you. Put Himself in the other person's place and then judge Him. All things whatsoever you would do for men that do unto you, even so do unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. The moment he does that, the disciple forfeits all advantage over other men and can no longer excuse himself what he condemns in others. He is as strict in condemning evil in himself as he was before with others, and he's as lenient with the evil in others as he was before in himself. The evil in the other person is exactly the same evil that's in us. There's only one judgment, one law, and one grace. Henceforth, a disciple will look upon other men as forgiven sinners who owe their lives to the love of God. That opened my eyes. They're all forgiven. But they have to receive it in Christ. Jesus didn't give, die on the cross and hold back the blood until somebody decided to come to Him and then He poured out the mercy on Him. He poured it out on everybody on that cross 2,000 years ago. He paid for the forgiveness. He, he 2 Corinthians 5.21 says He became sin. He didn't take your sins and my sins. He took sin itself upon Himself and He judged, bore the penalty for sin itself on Himself. So the price has been paid. For everybody. 
The sin that sends people that, 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 that sends people to hell is the rejection of that free gift of His Son. Because if we, we look more at John 3.17, it says that what condemns them isn't Christ, they condemn themselves by rejecting that gift. The disciple will only look at other men as forgiven sinners who owe their lives to the love of God. This is the law and the prophets. There is none other on the, other than the supreme commandment to love, the God, love God above all things and our neighbors as ourself. I'll wrestle with this decision. I just felt this morning impressed to do this. We're going to see a video. This is a video by a man named Todd White. Some of you may be familiar with it is. He's an evangelist. Travels all over the world. And I'll tell you, he's got long dreadnoughts. You know, he doesn't look like your standard evangelist preacher with the slick back hair, you know, and the shiny suit. But this man's out among people. And he has a ministry called Lifestyle Evangelism. And we're going to see this man. This is why I'm showing this video. We're going to see this man in the streets of Brazil among a march of Satanists. So be ready. And I, I debate it because it will shock you a little bit, but we need to be shocked. Because what, what shocks us is it, it pushes our comfort zone. But our comfort zone needs to be pushed because you and I would most likely not go out among these people because they don't look, they look like Satanists. But watch what happens when this man goes to one. So it's a little long, it's about seven minutes. So that's why I've ended it a little bit earlier. But we're going to run this, lead into it, and just let God speak to you. Watch. What I, want you, what I want you to see out of this is this man did not react to what he saw. Anybody familiar with Todd White's ministry? Yeah, okay. He didn't react to what he saw. He, and he talks about this. He let the love of God that's in him go past the horns and the paint and see the man that's lost on the inside. And he brought the love of God to him. So let's run that video. Heaven went bankrupt to redeem your soul from the pit so that God can redeem your mind so that you can actually think like a Christian instead of confess to be one. All your guilt and your shame and your condemnation is wiped out and you really aren't trying to fake a smile. You can't help but to smile because your heart sees Jesus. And you're in love with God and everything in you is so in love with God that you can't help but to share your faith because what kind of love is this? 